What's up, y'all? What's up, Red? Thanks for the bite. But you got my 40, homie. Welcome into a new episode of Get Fiddles and Paradiddles. My name is Chris. I'm John. Oh, there's John. And welcome into what, John, I had to go back and look at this, but yeah. I can't believe it, but we, we've hit a milestone with the podcast. This is episode 40. What you got on my 40, homie? <laughs> you remember that? Remember that from Friday? Friday. Know, we used you to got tease that a lot on, on the road. That was our... Debo. Yeah, yeah we Debo. quoted that movie a lot. I, I forgot about that. Yeah, what you got on my 40, homie? <laughs> Number four, man. Number four zero, excuse me. It's four zero. Hard to believe. Man. I don't this remember the... Is, uh, did we... Has, how long have we been doing this? Gosh. Two years? Three years? I think it's three years. Two, three? Yeah. yeah. 40 episodes. 40 episodes, man. Uh, we're... we're uh, Excited for this this year to get going, man. We're gonna be, uh, you know, back, got the uh, got the band back together, Elwood. Mm-hmm. We're getting this thing back on track. Um, looking forward to uh, getting into the episode today. But I uh, want to thank everybody for continuing to listen and um, be our faithful followers of, of this little podcast. And uh, we're excited to get back to you. Uh, yeah, I know man. you are as well, Chris. Oh yeah, it's good to be into 2021. Correct. You know, we're here. We are. Yeah. Uh, we're recording this about the middle of the month here, and yep. um, yeah, 2021. It's it's. Uh, we won't talk about any negative things, but it's definitely definitely feels like 2020 right now. It sure does. Mm. Uh, it came in like a wrecking ball, like mm. Miley Miley Cyrus <laughs> says. All 2021 <laughs> it came in like a wrecking uh, ball. Dude. Is Trump riding the wrecking ball or is Biden? <laughs> Maybe it's a tandem situation. I think they're. I think they're both pushing the pushing the ball, man. Pelosi you know? and Pelosi pushed them, got them started. Yeah, she's she's just God. They're all just, mm. you know, if if if. If a bomb did have to go off, and I'm saying this jokingly, <laughs> and I, our podcast is deleted, <laughs> yeah, and we're all and we're deplatformed, yeah, I mean, golly, it's it's crazy, man. It's it's definitely, I mean, you know, honestly, I think we kind of forecasted this on our last episode when we came back from our little break that you know, it's more the same, you, you know, nothing's really gonna gonna change and uh in the foreseeable future so yeah this uh, this is the new normal this is the new normal like we were saying so uh but at any rate we'll 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 progress forward yeah it's it's good to get the get the year going and get our little podcast going we got uh we got big plans big plans this year uh got a got a cool episode uh today got some yeah. interesting stuff that has happened since 
We've recorded our last episode, Chris. Yeah. Well, so you guys probably noticed we have new intro music. Um, And and some of you may not know that the intro music is not only uh, written by, but recorded by, edited by, mixed by, mastered by yours, 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 uh, not yours truly, my my co-host. Left me. John Mobley. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So loving the new track, dude. It sounds great. Thanks, Thanks, man. Uh, You know, just whipped it together, whipped a little something together. It's... uh, you know, it's not uh, Rachmaninoff or anything like that, but uh, and, um, I dig it. Yeah, man. I think uh, we uh, needed to ring in the new year with some new uh, new music, uh, fresh, fresh, uh, crunchy groove for the kids, Chris. Yeah, man. Yeah, um, man. I mean, the, fu- the fusion sure. vibes were, were super fun for, for the first 39 episodes, but yeah, we can ride this one out for maybe another 39. Yeah, 39. <laughs> Oh, boy. We won't go down that road. Well, John, there's some news that happened that I know that you're eager to talk about, and I I feel like I'm going to have to stand on the outside of this news and kind of just ask questions as the person who is the drummer in this podcast, the drummer Mm -hmm. in this band. Um, Gibson made really big news at the beginning of the year, uh, and I think I said it was – uh, January 6th, so just about you know first first part first week of of the year, yep. and they bought uh, boutique the boutique amp company Mesa Boogie. Like they just said, hey, we're yeah, we're buying these guys coming in like a wrecking ball. Yeah, uh, Gibson is um, you know decided to buy Mesa Boogie. Yeah, I mean I don't think anybody saw this coming. Um, I sure didn't. I, I, I mean, kudos to the Gibson and Mesa people for keeping this under wraps because usually this type of, of merger um, in, in, in the private sector, you're going to kind of get wind of, even in like, you know, the arts private sector, like guitar and amp making. I mean, it's a big consumer uh, product industry. Mm-hmm. So you would think this would be real hard to keep tight lipped. You know what I mean? Um, I haven't heard one whisper of Gibson trying to get into the amp business, but that's essentially what they're doing, man. Like they've decided they want to, when, you know, I think we talked about this in an episode. I'm not sure if we did or not, but Gibson basically filed for bankruptcy, restructured the company and they have a new CEO Mm -hmm. and a new, um, uh, I guess CFO marketing chief, whatever you want to call it. There's two guys, that are basically running Gibson and um, they have decided that they're going to basically go with what brought them to the show. Right. As opposed to doing, trying to turn Gibson into a, uh, you know, an S and P company, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're Gibson. They make, they used to, and I think they're getting back to it. I think jury's still out, but Every guitar player, the the um, some of the f- first goals that you set as a guitar player is owning a Gibson guitar is like one of the one of the holy grails of yes, being like a, a musician. A, a milestone, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So, owning a Gibson guitar uh, hasn't lived up to that kind of uh, you know Ithaca like you were talking about over the past twenty or so years. But now with the new restructuring, the new guys in charge. They're getting back to doing what Gibson's supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. With that being said, I mean, if, if you think about it, it makes total sense for these guys. Of course, they want to get into the amplifier market. Like, um, 
if if I don't know the I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're over last year, uh, pretty much all guitar manufacturers their sales have like quadrupled mm-hmm. uh, because you know you got people at home working from home they got nothing to do they're bored they start picking up guitar mm-hmm. you know um, so you've got along with that you've got the emergence of cats like me the home studio guys right right that uh you know are are into wanting to record and you know not necessarily you know completely digital uh, modeling but you know want some real tube amp you know flavor for their recordings which Mm -hmm. is great Mm -hmm. so if you think about it from you know uh you know, a wide angle lens, it makes a whole lot of sense for Gibson to get into the amp business. So, uh, before we started, um, you and I were talking about that, that Gibson used to make amps, but they got out of it. So do you think the purpose of this is just to let Mesa Boogie be Mesa Boogie and just be incorporated with Gibson? Say like, you know, when Zildjian purchased, uh, Vic Firth, they never really infiltrated how they did business. It was just that Zildjian was their parent yes. company. Do you right, think it'll right. be like that? Or do you think that Gibson's going to release like Gibson branded amps? Uh, that's a good question, man. That's a real good question. Um, the short answer is I'm not sure yet. I don't know. Um, what I will say is, is that they can take uh, some some notes from other amp makers in the business. Uh, for instance, when Eddie Van Halen came to Fender to redesign his 5150 amps, mm-hmm. the amplifier basically had the 5150 on there. It didn't have the Fender logo. Now, it did have a small little F for fender mm-hmm. just like a little plate that's the size of a small rectangle or a small square mm-hmm. that just had the f in there but you if you didn't weren't paying attention you wouldn't see it like the the amp when you saw the you saw my the, oh yeah the one i mean it's it looked like an eddie van halen amp it right did. yeah it didn't look like it, it was branded by any company it truly looked like it was just his own exactly so if I'm Gibson, that's what I'm doing. I mean, Mesa Boogie is a brand name. I mean, it is the reason people – it's a specific uh, um, kind of color that guitarists are looking for. Right. And if you put, you know, for instance, the dual rectifier or the triple rectifier, like that's the sound of of metal. Yeah. That head is the sound of metal, all genres. You know, the – you know, the bubblegum pop metal, the, you know, the hardcore metal, all that stuff. Like the dual and triple rectifier is the metal sound. Yeah. And if you put Gibson across there instead of triple rectifier, I, I don't think that's smart. Yeah. Well, maybe now, maybe think, it'll be something where they, of course, they keep their bread and butter amps out there. The, the names, like you say, that are well known. But yes, maybe they'll venture into some some custom things with well-established guitar players. I'm not sure th- who those would be these days, but yeah, I, I think that's probably what they're going to do is they're just going to badge. They'll put some, uh, a small little teeny tiny Gibson, you know, logo on there somewhere, either on the backside of the amp or, you know, inside the chassis of the cabinet, you know, something that will, they can put their stamp on, but I, I think they should take some, some homage from, from what Fender did when Eddie Van Halen came over is just let, that brand be the brand. Right. Right. And you just provide the, 
you know, the, the capital and the distribution and, the, you know, all that stuff that these big, huge companies can provide. Right. Um, so, I, you know, it, it I, time will tell on that, you know, jury's still out because nobody's, this hasn't been, like I said, nobody has even been whispering, uh, any kind of, oh my God, you know, I think Mesa's going to get bought out by Gibson. Nobody saw this coming. Right. So I don't think anybody really knows what to expect. Yeah. Especially from Gibson, you know, even though they are still, are there, they have new management and all this stuff that, you know, they still got a stigma that they've got to shake off of them as a company. Mm-hmm. So, and this might be, you know, maybe buying their way back into those good graces. It could be part of that. I think that's part of it too. I think it's a, um, a, a kind of a, a, um, a, a flare, um, shooting up in the, to the sky to musicians are like, Hey, we're getting back to, to the basics here. Right. Right. Amps and guitars. I hope it, I hope it is like the, the Zildjian Vic Firth or like when DW purchased Gretsch drums, that happened 10 years ago. And what was crazy is that Gretsch drums, like, Oh, it took, it took a little bit of time. Obviously there is, it takes time for there to be movement, but Gretsch drums, their marketing was much better. Their quality control was better, you know, and now, you still don't know that you could you could go to the Gretsch drums website and there's not a DW logo anywhere. You go to Vic Firth's website. There's not a Zildjian logo anywhere, but mm-hmm. those parent companies are like you say, injecting those funds into it to help, you know, revitalize or change or make better or whatever. Right. Right. And I think that that's, um, that's a good thing. Um, it can't, it can, you know, make, make things better, but, it's just really hard to to forecast out how this thing is going to be run. Um, you know, all indications are that the new people in charge of Gibson are, are going to do it right, um, and they're going to try and 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 stick to what got them to the show, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which was always been guitars, um, but it just makes sense for them to have a custom shop for amplifiers. You know, and and be able to pump out the Mesa stuff that everybody knows and loves, and but also have them start designing Gibson brand amps. You right. know, like the ones they made. You know, like the GA seventy nine uh, that they made in nineteen sixty that was made for all their stereo uh, ES three forty five guitars. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things are like holy grails for session guys because they sound because they're stereo. Each they have each. Each speaker has its own power amplifier and it has a built-in tremolo in there and it's just, you know, bouncing back and forth. It's just, it's, you know, that, that was some ahead of its time technology back then. Right. So I think that it makes sense for Gibson to kind of put their foot in that, in that water. And that's good boutique amp water so we'll see what it'll happens be, it'll be fun to watch and, and see what happens over the next coming couple of years you know it probably will take some time for them to get kind of married well um, yeah i think so i think it's gonna you know uh, it's gonna be a definitely a two-year time frame before you can really have a a sense of what they're trying to do yeah yeah so but rest let, assured if yeah. they don't do it right i'll let you know yeah <laughs> john will have a strong opinion a strong opinion so, John, I'm going to hit you with something that um, we uh, we didn't really discuss before we started the episode. And really, this just came to my mind as we were talking about this Gibson thing. Um, so, typically, the NAM show happens like the third weekend of January. 
right? So yeah, it would yeah. it would be not this weekend that you know we're recording near the the middle of the month, but it would be it's normally in the twenties somewhere, the twenty fourth through the twenty eighth or something like that. Right. Um, so let's let's postulate. We use a big word here. Yeah. If if we know that the NAM show is not going to happen its normal way, there's not going to be a convention hall full of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious what you think might happen um, instead. Like, of course, there's going to be new products released, but do you anticipate that manufacturers will be announcing those things, or will we see big things on the internet? Or I don't know. What do you think? That's a good question. I've actually been thinking about that. Um, it. it once again, short answer, I think they're going to do it all over the internet, man. I mean, it's, that's just kind of, uh, you know, maybe live streaming is probably going to happen. You yeah. know, if there's like some big reveals or new, big new products, they'll live stream it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, wouldn't that be cool for someone like for them to all have, I mean, those booths in general are what we would call socially distanced, but you know, having all those booths set up and then having like a camera crew be able to go through there and kind of show you things which you do Without see there some being stuff. loud racket and yeah yeah I mean, it would be chaos it would be qu- quiet and we could actually focus on the new gear i don't right. know it popped in my head as you, you said that because it could be that you know what if what if this relationship and this this idea with like say gibson and mesa boogie has been more mature than we realize and they actually release a product you know yeah, which it would not surprise me i mean i'm sure this thing has been in the works for Probably all of last year, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was not. Um, it wasn't something that was just lightly worked through. It's probably been yes. months and months. So I imagine there's got to be some kind of something in the works between those two. So, yeah, I would anticipate hearing some kind of news from the Gibson Mesa booth yeah. for sure. Well, that's that's some exciting stuff to think about for our next episode. We'll keep our ears to the ground for, for NAM information as we get closer to the end of this month. Yeah, and it all it's all going to be virtual, so nobody ain't nobody going to Nam. Yeah, so we'll, Crazy. we'll definitely dive into it and um, you know let you guys in on what we think's the coolest, hottest, latest, and greatest. Yeah, at the definitely. Show. So, um, John, let's segue into um, kind of the 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 main topic of today. Um, John and I, we, we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to, to bring content to you guys that feels either relevant or interesting to us, right? I mean, this yep. is a podcast that it definitely revolves around music, revolves around guitars and drums, um, but we like to bring you other content. So uh, even though that what we're about to talk about is about music, it definitely isn't centered around guitar or drums. Um, John had this idea about talking about albums Yes. from specific decades um and and not really again how the guitar player on a certain album played some crazy good solo or had incredible um uh, tone or a drummer that you know is like breaking the mold at, in a certain in a certain decade but more more mm-hmm. importantly how that album impacted that decade and yeah. what that album or albums did yep. to kind of push that influence into the next decade and into the next decade and and those dominoes continue to fall yep yep so so we we've we fleshed this out and um we picked the 60s the 1960s to start yep. with um yep I mean, we could say that this is, you know, the 50s probably are the birth of some kind of form of rock and roll. Sure, sure. But you I, know, it, was I, more, it was more mature and realized in the yes. 60s. Yes. Yeah, there was some um, stuff was starting to change uh, in, in the way things were actually being recorded. 
you know, innovation and technology, um, the the um, the use of you know different pieces of gear that were being literally pushed to the forefront of technology. Um, all these things kind of came together in the sixties yeah, and really kind of set the standard for, for recording even to this day. Right. I mean, what's funny is that the stuff that was recorded and how it was recorded, not what was recorded, how yeah. it was recorded, how it was recorded are, are things that people are trying to go back to now. You know, there's yeah. been such yeah. this overwhelming pro tools, mm-hmm. digital presence that people mm-hmm. want that analog digital record. I mean, uh, analog recorded, um, uh, you know, they, they go into it with that mindset. Like we're going to record this album like they did in the sixties or the seventies or even the eighties. Yeah. I mean, look at your plugins on your DAW. I mean, they're all modeled analog pieces of gear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, whether it be, you know, a tape machine or, uh, you know, uh, different compressors, uh, things like that. It's all, it's all, modeled after a lot of these things that were being used and developed in the 60s. Right. So to make this fun, uh, as we say, we're going to start in the 60s, but John and I, we, we see this as kind of a five-part thing where we hit each decade, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. and Because each, each decade, Chris, there's, there's a lot of innovation yeah. that happens in this, you know, 40, 50, 60-year time span, man. I mean, you've got a lot of things that are coming. Right you know, are, are, are getting moved to the forefront. Right. Right. So what we decided to do is to kind of keep us, you know, to keep us on track, hold ourselves accountable is that we're going to present two albums that, um, basically defined not only say rock music or the sound of that decade, but also the way it was recorded. I think the thing that Mm -hmm. we're going to focus on the most is the sound of the decade. The sound yes, of the decade, not the individual you, parts. Part, yeah, yeah, sound yeah, of the decade. The sound of the decade. Thank you. It's perfect. So part one, 1960s. Um, John, since this is this is your brainchild. Uh, Make you love, be- not war, man. Yeah. So first album is Jimi Hendrix, right? Oh, God, yes. Uh, for me, um, it's definitely Jimi Hendrix. That that's This is the sound that when I heard, I was, I was just... I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play guitar like that. Yeah. And and the the visceral nature of this record, uh, for me, it's the uh, Electric Ladyland record. Um, you know, and Chris and I, we were talking about this before the show. You know, the Are You Experienced record came out before, which you know, obviously that one was you know, put him on the map, you know, it's got all the staples, you know, like fire and foxy lady and all that stuff. But electric Ladyland was more of a record, mm-hmm. right? It, it was, it, it had a theme to it. It wasn't just a bunch of radio, you know, hits, you know, uh, this was more of Hendrix starting to kind of spread his musical wings a little bit, but sonically this record has so much stuff going on new new technique recording techniques you know like using reverse delay and hard panning and and you know use of of different effects on the guitar like actually running a leslie cabinet through your guitar you know playing your guitar through a leslie cabinet a leslie cabinet is what you know the hammond organ hooks up to just to give it that watery liquidy sound 
um, you know, the use of fuzz pedals on the guitar. I mean, a lot of stuff was going on this record mm-hmm. that sonically it just it made it sound way ahead of its time. So, and 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 a lot of people who uh, who were just kind of you know passersby with Jimi Hendrix, he was very heavily uh, competitive and influenced by the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he was basically, you know, trying to not really outdo them, but kind of stay in their, in their kind of uh, lane, if you will, as far as what they're, how they're recording the record, the, you know, using the same microphones, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, which is, it goes to show you that, the sound sonics that were being created were nobody was nobody was doing it at the time. So when you heard a record, you know, like Abbey Road, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. and you're like, holy crap, I want my record to sound like that. Right. Right. You know, which which still happens to this day. Yep. You know, um, so. But but to get back to the record. You know, obviously the guitar playing, um, and and the songs drew me in, but the sound of the record, man, right. the sound of the record. I took some time and and pulled some bullet points from it that I, I thought were very interesting. Um, there's a there's there's a I think some people may know this, some people may not, but I know of this that that Hendrix was he was a studio perfectionist. Like oh, it had yeah. to be super perfection. And one of the yeah. the cool uh, uh, little bullet points I found was that him and drummer uh, Mitch Mitchell mm-hmm. recorded 50 takes of the song Gypsy Eyes. 50 <laughs> whole complete takes. And um, I mean, that's just insane. Like that kind of perfectionism is, you know, it defines like, you know, whether you'll go that far or not. I mean, that's in the vein of like you two would be, you know, they would they would try to stay awake for days just to see if something new would come out of a song. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I thought I, I found surprising was that Hendrix was very insecure about his vocals and oh, that he yeah. would he would actually record his vocals behind like hiding behind studio screens so people couldn't see him. Mm-hmm. Um, so think about what you hear on that album. And, you know, for us, like we would think that it's great. But, you know, he was hiding doing those vocals. Yeah, man, because he was the guitar guy. Yeah. Right. He always, you know, he kind of had this. um you know, um, this part of him that was never really satisfied vocally with what he was doing. Cause once again, you know, he's like listening to McCartney and Lennon, like do these amazing, uh, harmonies and, and, and come up with these amazing melodies. So he's, you know, look what Hendrix was comparing him to at the time. I mean, you've got some (laughs) heavy hitters that he's competing against. Right. Right. So, you know, um, and and to be quite honest, he was right. He's not the best singer in the world, but it's not about. That's what makes Hendrix Hendrix is. It's it's a culmination of the of the beautiful melodies with the with the rock with the guitar playing with the with the production in the studio. Mm-hmm. That's what made Hendrix Hendrix. You know, it wasn't his breathtaking vocal. Right. Uh, that's that's not what it's about. Yeah. Um, that perfectionism, that perfectionism, is, yeah. but yeah, they, they, I mean that he would drive, you know, Eddie Kramer did most of, 
most of Hendrix's records. He'd drive him crazy in the studio, man, just doing. Could you imagine fifty takes of one song of the same song? <laughs> of do the it same again. Song. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's Not it to again. mention, Chris, there was no Pro Tools. These guys were doing this on tape. Yeah. You know how much tape they probably wasted, and how much? Ta- I mean, dude, tape back then was a lot of money. Right. I mean, you have people like in lab coats who would come into the studio to cut your tape. I mean, they had to be freaking scientists at this point. The technology was just so new right. and so ahead of its time. You know, I just can't imagine having to splice up all this tape. Or or imagine if they want, okay, well, yeah, the chorus on take 40 was great. Let's cut that out. Yeah, yeah. And let's paste it on to the chorus of number 36 because we're going to use that tape. I mean, and let's understand, like you're saying, like paste is like literally taking a section of a tape and putting it on another piece of tape. Like right. paste, 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 paste. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I just... I would love to see that process like happen. You know, I'd probably need to find some YouTube video where they're, they're, you know, they're not just copy and pasting. Yeah. Like we, yeah. we hear the word paste and we, we instantly go like click, click and it's done. Like that was arduous. Yeah, totally, man. And to kind of get off on a sort of a side point. So I watched the, uh, the Bee Gees documentary on HBO oh. a couple of weeks ago, which was amazing. So I'll try to give a short, version of the story so and this this will kind of give you an idea with tape so their studio uh drummer was the same drummer they used uh, their live drummer was was a studio guy Mm -hmm. he ended up breaking his wrist when they were making um uh one uh i think if they were working on the saturday night fever soundtrack Mm. and the song more than a woman right oh yeah so they had actually already demoed more than a woman so the drummer broke his wrist. So this was some groundbreaking stuff back then, too. So they took the drummer's groove from the demo and just looped it. So if oh. you go back and listen to that song, it's just it's basically eight bars of the same groove that they cut and spliced from tape and wow. used so they could finish that song. And so they had the they had to splice it as many times as they wanted to. They couldn't just keep hitting, Correct. you know, paste, paste, paste. They had to, yeah, they had to splice it for the... So these guys, the producer and the engineer that work with the Bee Gees, they literally, it's its cool. They're in the tracking room, and one of them's got like a microphone stand that he's using as a reel, and the tape's going around this microphone stand, and he's at the very back of the, uh, of the, of the console room, and they're, so they can loop this drum groove in. God, that's crazy. It, it, it's crazy. I can't understand the, the, the thought process that you would have to that you would have to do so that right there long story short that was the birth of the loop more than a woman that song that is the birth of the drum loop that's amazing that it's that is a, not a live drummer on that on that particular song it is eight bars of a, of a demo and i'm just gonna i'm just, this just popped into my head at the time they were doing what they had to out of necessity and probably didn't want to reveal that to anyone. Oh, no. Right. They didn't want to reveal that. But now that information comes out and it's like groundbreaking information. Right. But they're going to, at the time they were remembering how hard it was to do that, how painstaking it was and how it had to be the secret. I bet like, don't let this out. Yeah. Because I I think if I'm not mistaken, you know, they had brought some studio drummers in uh, to try and track and it just didn't feel right. Mm. And, uh, 
you know, they decided that the drummer's groove on the demo was the best and that's what they needed to use. So they figured out a way to do it. And that's Man, what they did. That's so cool. So they cool. took, they, 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 out of necessity, they took, you know, that drum groove and just cut and paste it and like old school, like <laughs> manually cut and paste it, you know? Wow. Amazing. So, so to, so to tie that in, I mean, this is what you're, you're dealing with in the sixties, right? You're dealing with tape, analog, no pro tools, you know, no auto tune. So if you wanted to get that perfection, I mean, you didn't have to it, take after take after take until you got it right. 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 You know? Um, so I think to, so to get back to the Hendrix record, you know, sonically, you know, I didn't know it at the time because I knew nothing of the recording process and music production, but I just knew that that record sounded different than what I had been listening to at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there were just different sounds that really, I was like, wow, what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, which is, you can't say a whole lot. You can't say that about a whole lot of music that comes out now that does that to you. Right. Cause it's right. all, it's all been done before. So it's kind of, you know, kind of comparing apples to oranges, but I don't know, man, it just felt, I just felt like I was, um, listening to something, uh, that was groundbreaking. Cause it was, you know, cause it was yeah. right. It yeah. was. Yeah. So John's pick, Hendrix. So that's um, mine. Legend yep. Ladyland. That's my pick. I think that's a pretty. Um, that's a game changer um, yeah. for for me and all guitarists. I think would probably feel the same way for sure. Uh, mine is going to be definitely uh, in the vein of albums, not drummers. And uh, um, you'll understand here in a second. John actually mentioned it just a minute ago, but it is Abbey Road by the Beatles. Um, yep. And this album came out in September 26, 1969. So it just gets into that 60s range. I, I would say that of any albums that made a massive, significant contribution to that decade, this one just gets in under the bar. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason this one was for the Beatles, not just for the decade and for music, was was so important is this was the first um, album they recorded where they had an 8-track reel-to-reel Whereas before yeah, all previous were on a four track, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to actually dig into this a little bit to understand just the um, the weight of the fact that not not really the weight of the fact that uh, an eight track recording would allowed for for more options and for you know probably less overdubbing. But it also makes me think like, well, if this came out in '69, the previous albums from the Beatles also were in the '60s. Imagine all the overdubbing that took place on a four-track tape machine. Dude, I can't. Four tracks, man. Four. Yeah. You listen to that stuff. Go back and listen to any of that Beatles stuff, you know, whether it's Rubber Soul or, you know, whatever. It could be any anything that came before Abbey Road was four tracks. That's all you could yep. put on there. Four tracks. And... um was it the Tascam machine that they used? The four-track Tascam, I yeah, believe? Four, ta- yeah, Tascam. Um you know, it's got a, uh, a a sonic quality to Abbey Road that is literally um, it, it changed the game, Chris. Mm-hmm. It changed the game. Uh, so you're going from not only are you going from four track to eight track, but you're going from a uh, a valve driven desk to a solid state mixing desk. 
wow. you know, which gives there's a particular uh, presence and 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 sharpness to solid state uh, recording desks um, that that, you know, just to kind of give you some cliff note version. So when you're going from a tube console, the tube console uh, recording console, think of warmth, mm-hmm. you know, big round low end and warmth. And conversely, the solid-state mixing decks are much clearer, brighter, have a top-end presence to them, have, has, a, has a sheen to it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're going from four tracks to eight tracks, and you're using a new transistor-based uh, uh, recording console desk that, that forever changes the industry. Right. Um, not to mention with all the other... You know, just the way, you know, me personally, Chris, and I'm just going to, I hope I don't offend any of our listeners. I'm not a huge Beatles fan. Mm, honestly, I'm not, I'm not either. I'm not they, huge, they don't really, huge. They yeah. don't dingle my dangle. Yeah. However, um, when I listen to Abbey Road, I can, I can take a lot of lessons listening to that record. Yeah. Um, the way that they, their songs are arranged I mean, it's some of the best arranging you will ever encounter. Whether you like the song or not, you, that's fine. But you got to respect the skills of the songwriters because these are some really ahead of its time arrangement uh, kind of uh, um, uh, tools that people are still copying to this day. Yeah, you know, I mean. You'll go into the studio and they'll be like, yeah, give me the, let's do like a, you know, come together, you know, type of, type of feel, mm-hmm. you know, or play me the Ringo beat. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like those things are, are staples in the, in the recording industry. And I think that that, that's kind of what we're trying to paint the picture of when we're doing these decades, Chris, is like the innovation that was happening in the studio. Not so much. You know whether we like the music or not. It's the the innovation during this decade is just yeah, it's crazy, man. Mind when blowing. You think about it. It's mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, I think about this. So think about why you and I we record stuff, and we take for granted that if we want to turn the guitar up, we can turn it up individually because it was yep. recorded on its own track. And mm-hmm. if we want to turn a bass drum up or turn a vocal up, we can do whatever we want to from a mixing standpoint, and we can add effects to those individual tracks. Mm-hmm. But think about the concentrated amount of effort that went into an eight track recording, where when it came down to mixing that album, they had so many things overdubbed on track one, so many things overdubbed on track two, that they had to be very specific on what they put where. So sonically, it would sound great, even once they got to the mixing you know, stage. Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, that's just to think about having to do that manually and not like in my doll. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, what? It's, it's crazy, man. I mean, Um, it's just, it goes to show like how much respect those engineers should receive, you know, like just, yeah. I mean, you know, George Martin, uh, the producer, uh, he's, he's a legend, man. I mean, you know, his, you know, he, he, he's kind of the, the the sauce the secret sauce in the Beatles that doesn't get talked about is George Martin and how he helped 
with arrangements and instrumentation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's that's kind of where that art of 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 the producer and the band kind of you start to see the formula, right. if you will, right. right? Of how how you get uh, get to to that groundbreaking status is it takes the producer in conjunction with the artist um, to get uh, get your vision out. Right. You know, and they did, you know, and I think that anybody that's a student of music, uh, whether or not it's your cup of tea or not, you can find the the inspiration and you can find the 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 quality uh, and and the the level of innovation that's happening. You know, you just got to use your ears. You know what I mean? Yeah, Uh, it's there. So. I think that's kind of where we're at, Chris, right? You know, yeah. it's not, not necessarily our cup of tea, basically. Uh, but golly, there's a lot going on with that stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this has a, been a, a great way for us to start, you know, these two albums. Of course, there would be so many more albums. You know, we could go even further back with the Beatles and even further back with Hendrix, because we're, we're actually speaking of two albums that were at the end of that decade. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's plenty of other albums out there to dig into. So we would encourage yeah. you to do that. And And really, I think, it takes like what John and John is saying is instead of listening to it for a certain guitar player or for a certain drummer or maybe a certain performance is to understand the work that went into creating that and the obstacles, even though they may not have been seen as obstacles then because it was the technology they had at the time, yeah. just the amount of work that went into make these great albums with the tools they had available. Like they really made the, the best use of, of what they had. Um, whereas now it kind of makes you, it kind of makes you go, why should anyone complain about not being able to get a great sound on an album now? Because you have so many incredible tools available to you. Like if, if you stripped away like 80% of that, what Mm -hmm. might you, what might you produce, you know, because it would force you to focus with just the small amount of tools you have. Right. I mean, it, it, it it just really goes to show you, man, like it just takes, um, yeah, um, it doesn't take a whole lot for you to kind of make something decent and good quality these days. It really doesn't, you know, musically. Yeah. You know, for instance, like in our home studios, man, like we can t- turn out some really good quality stuff with the limited amount of gear that we have. Yep. Uh, this was not even in the radar or in the realm of possibility in the 60s for people no. to have at home studios, man. No. Probably not even in the seventies and not even in probably the eighties where like you know, the home studio came around. Yeah, you know, late eighties, you know, when technology got to a point to where, you know, the computer, the personal computer, that kind of stuff. Um, so you, it, it's just it's it's really it, it's kind of humbling um to see how far um we've we've came along in the recording and and, and technology. Uh, it it's really lent itself to musicians, but yeah, there's there's tons of records in the '60s. I mean, like all the Motown stuff, like you know, they're 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 huge, you know. Um, but you know, sonically, you know, there wasn't a whole lot going on. You know, these were these these songs were getting recorded to get put on the radio. So you're not going to get any funky panning or mm-hmm. you know crazy weird effects. You know, these were these were produced to be on the radio. So, you know, that's why we're trying to pick out some of these albums that really kind of, kind of set the standard for innovation, um, uh, sonically in the studio, um, and, you know, thematic approaches. 
right uh, not just you know top 40 type stuff for so, real yeah you know so you guys understand that's that's going to be the um I think John just hit the nail on the head. That's kind of the idea going forward um, with this this five-part series that we're going to do. Uh, obviously, next episode, we'll be talking about the 70s. Um, the 70s. But this Ooh, is... <laughs> to me, that's the, best, that's the best decade of music, hands down. Yeah, yeah. They're it, golly, the 70s, man. It's super dense. It's going to be hard for us to, to pull yeah. just two albums, but... Uh, yeah, well, and I'm going to try to go, I'm going to try to go off the beaten path again um, oh, okay. with my selection next week. Just, just so everybody out there is ready. I'm going to really, really do some homework um, and see if I can't pick out uh, something that, uh, you know, I'm going to throw down the, the number three. If I'm a catcher, Chris, I'm going to oh, throw down three. Okay. Okay. Curve. I'm going with the curve. The I'm curve. Gonna throw, I'm going to throw something different at you, man. So. All right. Excellent. Well, I can't wait. Actually, maybe don't even tell me. You know what I mean? We've not had this discussion okay. in depth yet All about right. the 70s, so All I right. want to be caught off guard. Okay. I, I want will. to be caught um, off guard. This is going to be a surprise. 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 Well, cool, guys. Um, John, time flies, man. We've been we've been rolling here for a bit. Um, yeah. Episode 40. I, I, I am... I am. I'm thinking about that number, and if you close your eyes, John, you can see us see in that hotel room recording episode one with that loud ass air conditioner. With that air conditioning right next to us, guys, go back and listen to episode like we're in one. A crack motel. Yeah, well, we kind of were. <laughs> we kind of were. Yeah, we had just come off of a gig uh, yep. playing with an artist, um, and we had been talking about doing this podcast for. I say weeks, but it was not weeks. It may have been a couple months where we had talked about yeah, this. Yeah, it was, it was a few this. months in the, in, in the planning for sure. And we felt like it was the best. Like we got done with that gig. We were inspired. We had done research. And that episode is recorded in a hotel room on an iPhone. Um, yeah. Yeah. John and I sitting shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. with two like imagine going to a hotel and there's, you know, whatever chairs they provide you at their little workstation or their little desk. Like we were just literally piled up in the hotel doing, doing this, getting it started. And Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's inspiring, man. It's amazing to have come this far. And even though we took a a, a big hiatus last year, uh, it's amazing to be back at it and to, to see that number 40 is, is humbling. It, It really is, man. Um, I'm glad that you took this journey with me. Uh, I couldn't do this without you. That's for sure. Same. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is when you think about it. Um, we didn't know really what to expect after we did our little first episode and it's just kind of, you know, taking on a a life of its own. Um, but we're going to keep, uh, keep at it and, you know, keep, uh, doing our thing, man. Um, you know, uh, we'll be at, uh, we'll be at 80 before you know it. Yeah. I mean, we, we could potentially hit 80, you know, in, in, in about a year and a half or so, depending on how, how quickly we want to churn out episodes. So, uh, let's think about the number 100 episode 100, 100 we'll century a, mark. Yeah. We'll hit a, uh, yeah. we'll hit a big, we'll hit a big milestone there. Well, John, let's yep. get out of here, man. I'm glad that we started our, our, uh, our journey in the sixties here. Yeah. Um, peace and love, man. Yeah. Roll the doobie, man. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, but we're going to get out of here, guys. Thank you for joining us uh, in our journey to to forty. If you've been with us all along, and thank you to all the listeners out there that are supporting us. Uh, it is it is something that we do not take for granted and do not take do not. lightly either. So, mm-hmm. uh, guys, we will catch you on the next episode, and we are out. <laughs>